0: You're listening to Never Sleeps Network.
1: This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula, where not only can you get your comics, your magic cards, and all the stuff that geeks like you will love, but now that accessible washroom is finally complete. This hits home for me, you guys. I'm a guy who uses a mobility scooter. I know how hard it is sometimes to have washrooms accessible in toronto so i'm really proud of leon for putting his money where his mouth is completing that accessible washroom and making equal access for everyone so go on down to 3456 young street Harry tarantula and tell them aaron sent you hey fan people if you've been listening to this podcast for a while you know i'm always talking about the connection between comics and coffee it's because i love coffee I do my French press every morning. I do the pour over. That's why we've teamed with the superheroes at BAM Coffee. BAMCoffee.ca Their roaster Aaron is Canadian. He's from Saskatchewan. And he's a geek like us. That's why he's putting his clean, ethically sourced coffee in something called a BAM box. He's combining coffee with the geek swag that I know our listeners are going to love. That's 700 grams or 350 grams of coffee with art prints by local Canadian comic artists, a limited edition mug. I mean, what more could you ask for? If you want to try it, he's giving a special promo code to Speech Bubble listeners, SB15. So go to bamcoffee.ca, type in SB15 at checkout, and get 15% off your first BAM box hey, maybe you want to just try the coffee. That's okay too. He'll send you 150 grams of coffee and all you got to pay for is the shipping. I mean, that's a pretty amazing deal. So go to bamcoffee.ca and tell Aaron that Aaron sent you. listening to Speech Bubble the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries with your host Aaron Broverman Hey, fam people, welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. Don't forget to uh, review and subscribe to Speech Bubble on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Especially if you review us, uh, it helps people uh, see us and. Uh, raises our profile in the various uh, programs that were available. And if you review us, I will send you a comic book from my personal collection. You just have to get in touch with us. Don't forget to visit our Facebook page, our Twitter, our Instagram at speechbubblepod, because, you know, I want to connect with the fans and the people who listen. Uh, with me today, we have Kat Verhoven. Kat is a Artist-cartoonist from Toronto, she launched the webcomic Meat and Bone in 2012, I believe. And then it was recently collected in 2018 into her magnum opus graphic novel published by Conundrum Press. Uh, it's kind of a masterpiece, in my, in my opinion. Uh, before that, uh, Conundrum also published *Tower Kind*. And uh, she's a founding member of Friendship Edition. If you listen to our uh, Jen Woodall interview, uh, you'll remember that Jen is also a member of Friendship Edition. uh, And uh, they're putting out a new anthology for uh, TCAF, the Toronto Cartoon Art Festival, which will be happening in May. Welcome, Kat. How are you?
0: I'm excellent. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm so happy to have you. Uh, Jen, Woodall turned me on to you. And I I knew you before, though, because I think you were at a panel, I think at last year's TCAF on comics and mental health.
0: Yeah, I remember that panel clearly. It was kind of like... Brutally emotional to go through and talk about such personal things with a bunch of other people who were also Having their own personal struggles to talk about right
1: and I think like Chester Brown was in the audience Like there were some legendary people in that audience for sure possibly. Yeah. Yeah So, um, the reason I bring that up is because that's sort of what meat and bone uh, deals with it it deals with uh, anorexia bulimia a lot of, like, the insecurities that you deal with in your 20s. So we're going to be talking a lot about, you know, what what's in that comic and, and the subject matter. But before we do that, uh, I want to get a sense of, like, you know, your, your beginnings. Um, where were you born?
0: Uh, I come from Kingston, Ontario, which is uh, a little bit northeast of here, about three hours. Um, it's a smaller city. Uh, and it's one of the oldest cities in Canada. So it's a lot of historic buildings and sort of weird architecture.
1: Didn't it used to be like the capital of... Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: yeah. that was the first capital of uh, Canada. And then they moved it, I believe, during or around the time of the War of 1812 because they were worried about the Americans coming over the water too easily and uh, invading.
1: Right. My, my brother-in-law lives in Kingston. I, it's one of the places that I love. Uh, Gord Downey is from there, so uh, if you get a chance, definitely go to Kingston. Uh, what was your childhood like?
0: Um, kind of strange. Uh, I have a, I come from a single parent family, so my mom raised my sister and I. Uh, she was disabled and was on um, disability for most of our time growing up. And part of the ways that she made ends meet was to actually rent out rooms in our massive house. So we always had. Uh, exchange students and new immigrants and army brats living with us for anywhere from, you know, one semester to a couple of years. So there was always this sort of carousel of interesting characters. Um, and so I, I grew up with a lot of uh, exposure to different cultures and different types of people, but also with a lot of uh, instability. Mm-hmm. Because
1: you didn't really know where, like, money was coming from and that sort of stuff?
0: Yeah. Like, I remember worrying about money at a very young age. And then my mom also has her sort of issues, which uh, we wound up moving a lot throughout my later, like, my early and later teens. So uh, in my, my early life, there was a lot of instability about money. In my later life, there was a lot of instability about location.
1: Ah, I see. And your your mom, is she physically disabled or like what what's the nature of her disability without getting too much into it?
0: Um, at that point in time, she had severe arthritis and carpal tunnel and she basically couldn't use her hands. Okay. So that was physical disability. Um, she's also got some mental health issues uh, that I won't get into too much. Right. Um, But she wound up moving to Australia, which sort of like miracle cured her hands. So that's where she lives now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I have a friend uh, who has uh, a disability and and it's uh, related to severe arthritis. And he went to Thailand and normally he he uses a wheelchair. But but in Thailand, because of the temperature, he could like walk around and, and like basically do everything that, like, a non-disabled person could do. So it was, it was pretty... Just because of, like, the humidity and that sort of thing, he felt so much better.
0: Yeah, and that is exactly what happened with my mom.
1: Nice, so. nice. So um, when, you, when you're when you meeting all these, like, cool people, what did you sort of pick up from them, the people that would, like, stay with you um, in your house?
0: Well, I remember... Uh... Um, This one younger, I don't remember everyone's names because I was pretty young, which sucks, but there was a younger Chinese man who'd lived with us and he taught me how to use chopsticks. And later on, there was a Sikh man who stayed with us and I remember him uh, tying one end of his turban to one end of the house onto like a bedpost or something, I'm not sure, and just like walking through the entire house, which was gigantic, and just like stretching out the fabric so that we could see how long the fabric in a turban is. Um, Then there was also like a rotating host of different students of different uh subjects so philosophy students math students art students and just getting to see all these different sort of types of personalities and learning about their lives and also seeing other people's personal drama putting my own you know childhood dramas into perspective so so being
1: exposed to so many different like cultures and practices and maybe religious beliefs and stuff how did that shape you as a person at such an early age
0: uh Kingston is a super, super white city, um, maybe less so now than it was then. But I remember growing up, not really, uh, seeing those differences, uh, as like something I should be aware of as a negative quality. Like everyone always felt like people and equal to me, even if, you know, they come from a different culture and they're experiencing the world differently. Like I just didn't have that, uh, i don't know close-mindedness that other people i grew up with probably had right so lucky very lucky
1: that's good uh were you always an artist or an artistically inclined how did that come into your life
0: um absolutely and my mom um when she was in university she studied languages and she studied art so she was very encouraging for artistic pursuits um and my sister and i were always uh we'd excel in our art classes and then our mom would like sign us up for lithography or, um, you know, fundamentals of life drawing and stuff like that. So we were always involved in the arts.
1: Is your sister older or younger?
0: Uh, my sister is one year older, uh, Mary Verhoeven. She's also a cartoonist. She does really, really great sort of uh, queer friendship stories that are usually a little bit horror-inspired, Um You should definitely check out her work because she's doing some really interesting stuff these days.
1: Yeah, I'd love to have her on for sure.
0: We always had like this competitive thing where one year I would be like the better artist and then she would be the better artist. And we'd always be like uh, neck and neck and pulling ahead of each other and sort of egging each other on. It was um, a very good way of developing skills.
1: How has that evolved in your professional lives now?
0: Um, I think this is her moment to be pulling ahead. Uh, She's been really, like I said, doing some interesting work. I feel like she's kind of coming into her voice with the sort of horror queer work. Um, So it it still plays out the sort of who's ahead, who's behind, but it just seems to like rather than in bursts of weeks or months, now it's like, okay, maybe there's a couple years where I'm ahead. Maybe Mm -hmm. there's a couple years where I'm behind.
1: And then with, with your mom nurturing your artistic talents, how did you fall into, like, cartooning and that sort of thing? Because there's a bunch of different, you know, artistic, you know, avenues or paths you could have taken just by being someone who draws, right? Uh,
0: yeah, and I'm I'm not exactly sure how that happened. In early, like, in gra- middle school, I guess, grades, uh, like, seven and eight, um, I was drawing comics of, like, Sailor Moon fan comics with all my friends, which... It's not that uncommon. I mean, I feel like Jen Woodall also would have probably done that. Uh, and then I fell out of comics until mid-university. Um, and at that point, Mary was a lot more into comics than I was. And she was reading uh, all of the X-Men comics and all of the Scott Pilgrim comics. And uh, it was around then that she sort of got me back into comics and I started drawing comics again. Uh, it, I was always writing stories. Um, that never went away. And comics is sort of the, the perfect fusion of the artistic talent that I was really like proud of in myself, and then my my love of storytelling.
1: Right, right. Because you know, comics has that unique way of like you can you can marry illustration with actual like telling of stories. Yeah, yeah.
0: and I, I still want to like experiment with the different ways that can be done, whether it's like a more image heavy heavy version or a more text heavy version, and sort of uh, explore the medium. Yeah.
1: It's interesting that like people seem to gravitate more towards comics than like picture books if they want to like tell stories and have a visual component is it because comics are so versatile and you can do so much with them
0: maybe uh, I think for me it's also picture books tend to be more restrictive in the age of your audience at least that's the expectation still right uh, with comics especially now there's very few limits on what audience you can pursue right so I don't want to do, at this particular point in time, uh, middle school or grade school books. Uh, and I don't see a lot of room for that in, as far as like a, a novel with pictures goes.
1: Right. We did discuss Sailor Moon quite extensively with, with Jen Woodall. I believe it. How did you, uh, how did you find Sailor Moon? Did, would you consider yourself... Sort of a geek in the in the fandom sort of a way.
0: Uh, not really. Um, not compared to basically all of my peers. We actually talked recently about how I am probably the least genre amongst all of the like friendship edition people. Um, I'm very heavily inspired by novels um, and especially fiction novels. Uh, that's really where I'm I'm getting my influences from. And I still love fantasy and sci-fi and anime, but just it doesn't. Uh, hold on to me in the same way.
1: Right. So from being an artist and sort of, you know, falling out of comics and then getting back into them and and sort of absorbing sort of what your sister was doing, I'm sure a little bit. um, How did you decide that this is something that you wanted to pursue as a career or professionally? Uh,
0: Well, I... I went to school for illustration because I'm like, this is a great way to do art and have a career and I can make money and live off of it. But I think, um, I don't really know how I feel about all of that stuff anymore. I don't feel like the financial side of art has been very good for me. So at this point in time, I'm like, not sure if I'll do it anymore.
1: Oh, okay. So let's talk about that a little bit. Like, What have been your experiences that have sort of soured you, you know, off of its pursuit?
0: I find, uh, now some people obviously make a pretty good career out of comics and out of illustration, but I don't like dealing with clients, which is a big problem if you're a freelancer of any kind. Um, And I find with comics specifically, the amount of money I spend on self-promo and travel very quickly eats into my profits, so that at the best of times I'm breaking even. So any time I've been making comics, I've also had to have a part or full-time job in order to just consider pursuing the endeavor. Right. And I'm in my thirties; it's exhausting.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you and you you sort of can't break into doing it like full time because you yeah. need you need something else to support it.
0: Yeah. So right now, my uh, my current struggle is I have like, a really great full-time job that I enjoy. I work at a printing press where I get to make other people's awesome books with, like, crazy print processes because we're one of the, uh, the top shops in Canada for, like, interesting work. Um, but because I spend, you know, 40 hours a week there, I... haven't drawn in a year so oh man like there's no time
1: yeah totally but but back when you were in you know in school this is what you thought you would you would pursue yeah totally okay so let let's go back there where you were like you know bright-eyed and uh, (laughs) thought the world was your oyster at the time um that's when you first published your first work right it was called uh the artichoke right
0: Uh, Yep, that would have been, I think, my final year at OCAD, either it was like 2009 or 2010. And I did a four or six page comic about um, my love of gourmet food. I was also doing um, a food blog at the time that was illustrated called Drawn and Devoured. So I've always loved cooking and gourmet food. And I also wanted to get back into comics at that time. So I took both and I made like an erotic gourmet food short comic, which I later turned into like a 40 page book. Which doesn't exist anymore. But um, that was very fun. It was like experimental, it was poetic, it was visually ridiculous. It was a really enjoyable exercise.
1: Did you, like, how would you combine eroticism and food? I know that they're usually associated, but they're, they can be associated in, in different and creative ways. So, how did you sort of uh, illustrate both aspects?
0: Um, I was trying to take foods that had sort of this, uh, aphrodisiac or erotic connotation. So, uh, oysters, hot spices. Um, I kept trying to work Spanish fly in there, but I couldn't do it. Um, just stuff like that. And then I would turn it into like a, a sort of visual metaphor for, uh, the sexiness of it, but also sort of the dark side that could be associated with that sexiness, like a, like a bad affair or something that's too rich to be handled. And then of course there's a lot of like mouths (laughs) right pretty easy to get the mouths involved
1: and then what was the text like poetry or yeah
0: i was trying to like i was writing in rhyme um i'm not like an expert poet but i enjoy it it's kind of uh something outside of everything else i do that's you know works different brain muscles basically Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's written in in, uh, poetry. I was experimenting with typography and having typography interact with the images and having all of that kind of work together to move this story along.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, what was the, how was the food blog? How did you get into blogging about food?
0: Uh, that was very much, um, just a, a love of food and, uh, having come from kind of a, My mom was a foodie. She loved to cook, but she very much cooked in sort of um, a traditional way. Lots of meat and potatoes. And then moving to Toronto and being like, what's a falafel? And like suddenly finding this world of different flavors and different foods. And uh, also at that point in time, I'd started working in cafes and restaurants. And I was working at the Art Gallery of Ontario in their cafe, And so I got to sample some of the really high-end food they were making. And I decided I wanted to go to nice restaurants and write about it and do something that literally nobody else in Toronto was doing, which was instead of taking photos, I would draw everything. Um, And it was really, really fun, but it was really, really expensive.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. Did you get any kind of attention or sponsorship or media for, for the blog?
0: Uh, I ran the blog for, I think, two or three years. And at the end of it, I was one of the top 10 blogs in Toronto, um, which is insane. Yeah. But it was because I really had found a niche niche that n- nobody else was doing and nobody else really could do. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I knew good food at this point. I knew how to talk about it. And I could draw really well. So there was nobody else who could do what I was doing. So Yeah, and kinda food kinda is sort of there. a challenge, right, to draw? Yeah, because it can look really ugly, really fast. Um, I got very into deconstructing the elements of a meal and almost like doing an abstract art piece with what I was eating. Um, like the the first couple posts, I was trying to be very literal and painterly in these drawings. And then I sort of cut loose and did this more abstract stuff. And I still think that's some of my best illustration work.
1: Nice. What was the blog called again?
0: Drawn and Devoured.
1: Wow. Sounds, sounds amazing. <laughs> So, what was your art school experience like? Uh, we've had a lot of people on; they've had varied experiences. <laughs> some bet. some very successful artists have dropped out of art school. So, outside of you know making the artichoke in your in your last year, what was your actual learning experience like?
0: Um, disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> I think the way a lot of schools in general have moved is towards being academic and university, and for hands-on learning skills like when you're an artist you need to know draftsmanship um, the way universities get their credits you have to shift more towards in-class studies that's that's just how it's set up for the the like for Ontario to recognize you as a university and not a college you have to have X amount of like in-class credits right so when uh, I went to the Ontario College of Art and Design OCAD, when they shifted into being a university, they lost a lot of the, like, technical training. They lost a lot of studio time. So I feel like I left that school not really knowing how to draw, even though I applied myself very hard to my classes.
1: Were you going there as the shift was happening, or was it already a university by the time you got there? I think
0: this was the second year of them being a university, so they were still figuring it out. Mm. Um, And, I mean, I enjoyed a lot of what I learned. I took some classes I never would have, and, like, I like the educational experience, but... I think for, like, anyone who's considering going to art school, you can learn everything online now that you can learn from university. Right. And I just don't think it's worth the money.
1: Or just getting the right kind of job in, like, yeah. publishing or art or, or that sort of yeah. thing.
0: I think probably, like, if I were to, to redo that section of my life, I would go to first year, make all of the awesome friends I have now. Like, the friendship edition people are all people I met at OCAD then peace out and go and, like, learn a trade that I could work in part-time and still do art and, like, learn all of the art skills online, which, like, you can get a university-quality education practically for free if you're willing to put in the time on your own time.
1: Right, right. Tell me about Friendship Edition. Like, how, you met all those people at OCAD, but mm-hmm. tell me about what they are, how they formed, because you are a founding member. So what was the sort of mission of Friendship Edition?
0: Uh. Friendship Edition started and sort of continues as this um, group of people uh, we met in university. We all have very different interests and ways of expressing ourselves through comics, but we're all sort of united in comics. Um, and these days we're actually looking into opening it up and making it less of a like, these are my friends and we're doing our, our every Other year anthology and more into more of a true anthology where there are like guest artists. And anyhow, we're looking at sort of changing the format, uh, maybe starting this year. But it's basically a showcase of experimental comics where we could all work together and uh, collaborate and promote one another and uh, push ourselves outside of what might be our typical comfort zones. Right. And so we do it every second year.
1: So in terms of like when you regularly meet, is it like monthly, weekly? Are you just jamming kind of? Oh, yeah. We meet all the time. Like
0: it's definitely weekly. It's not like a set thing, but uh, we see each other constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as like meeting to talk about the Friendship Edition book goes – Uh, That tends to happen a little bit more formally around this time of year when we're actually like putting it together Uh, and we'll actually sit together and be like, well, what's the theme this year? What do we want to do differently? What do we want to do the same? Um, How
1: did the group get its name?
0: Um, Okay. So one of our, uh, one of the things we've changed about Friendship Edition, it started out as uh, eight people and now there's sort of four core members and then we have sort of um, floating members. And one of the original members was uh, J.J. Tabraca who works in film as like a, I believe he does sculpting for film now. Um, so he doesn't do as much of the illustration, but at that time he was doing tons and tons of gorgeous prints and these huge like wall-sized prints. Uh, but whenever he'd pull a print that he didn't like very much, he'd just give it away and he says, that's just a friendship edition. Ah. So uh, that's where we got our name. Actually, nice. it's the copies of your art that you give to your friends.
1: Nice, and you guys are just all connected through comics and illustration and that yeah. sort of thing. Okay, yeah, pretty much. Cool, cool. Um, what would you say has come out of Friendship Edition? Like besides the friendship, has anyone you know broken out as a result of being part of it? That sort of thing.
0: Um, I don't think so. Not that I. Like, I don't know of anyone who's gotten any particular recognition for Friendship Edition things, but it's more of a project for us to, like, be given the permission to do something that's weird for us. Right. So it's less about, like, getting other people's recognition, and it's a lot more about, like, giving ourselves the opportunity to experiment and show off experimental work. right? At least that's that's how I approach Friendship Edition.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I was asking because there are other collectives, like, from a hat and stuff, and Mm -hmm. they were sort of created because it was sort of like you know if we have lots of people you know there's strength in numbers and maybe we will get greater recognition and like wider attention to our work than uh, than we would as individuals right and also it keeps you like motivated and stuff
0: yeah i think i've seen that before and i've seen Mm -hmm. anthologies where it's very much about like making sure everyone's showcased so that you can then hand this uh this anthology book out to different publishers or art directors or something and it's sort of like a portfolio anthology which is also a great strategy um i just don't think that's what we wanted from friendship edition particularly uh it's probably the least commercial thing that i'm involved in
1: right so tell me a little bit about the anthology like what how do you structure it what's what's in it you know because it's more free-flowing and artistic how is it different than like other anthologies you might see
0: uh, so, the loose structure is every year somebody sort of takes over as like um, the leader of Friendship Edition. Um, and that person is in charge of herding the cats and putting the layout together and making sure all the files are ready and all that boring stuff. And depending on who it is, they sort of get to set the tone of the book for that year. Uh, so, this year it's Jillian Blackenhorst, who is a really incredible uh, sort of mer- meta narrative. Um, cartoonist who does very experimental, uh, very uh, challenging work. Um, I think her work is some of the uh, most unusual out of everyone who's involved in, in Friendship Edition, and also some of the most like um, how to how to phrase it like technically challenging. She's always trying to restructure what the idea of a story is, um, and like ex explore different ways of layering, layering narratives on top of one another, where sometimes you have to, like, read three of her books in a sequence, and the sequence changes how the story works. So, like, she's doing really interesting stuff. She also does uh, indie game design. Oh, nice. So I think her game design influences her comics making and vice versa.
1: Nice. So, have you ever been in charge of putting together the, together the anthology?
0: Uh, yep. My year was the second Friendship Edition, and last year um, was Mary's. I think Jen did the first one nice so uh yeah i I think trevor will probably do the next one
1: nice so for you when you did it what what did you focus on
0: um i was most hmm, like i think the uh the person who's helming the friendship edition book gets to kind of pick the uh the theme and for me i wanted to try and like uh push us technically um i think i was very interested in um how the print quality would look on the book so i I remember focusing on just, like, making sure the files are right and making sure we could have, I think, uh, there was, like, a gold. There was, like, a... A gold ink that I wanted us to use. So I tend to focus on like how it's going to look and then let everybody decide what they want to do for the story.
1: Right, right. Okay. So tell me about uh, your first book. Tell me about uh, Tower Kind. This was after The Artichoke, right? And, and the yep. food blog and that sort of stuff. So how did you go from The Artichoke into that project?
0: So I think after The Artichoke, I probably had some time where I wasn't doing any comics specifically. And then I actually did Meat and Bone. Okay. Uh, first and I started Meat and Bone as a webcomic and after the first year of doing that I got an idea for uh, a comic based on some kids that I'd seen playing around in the St. James town neighborhood where I was living and I wanted to do a subscription style comic like um end of the fucking world or uh the frontier comics I think that's not right anyhow okay. uh subscription subscription comics were something i'd become aware of right and i wanted to do one and i had this story so i actually started working on that at the same time as meat and bone nice uh and it was a uh, 12 pages per month and i convinced people to give me money up front and they got a comic in the mail every month for 13 months
1: how did you build your your list of subscribers
0: um i would talk about it a lot on twitter and instagram but actually most of it came from uh tcaf so that would have been like tcaf 2013 or 14 i think 13 probably um and i just like talked to people in person and told them hey this is what i'm doing you should just subscribe and people actually did which was very unexpected
1: and at that point did you have an audience for meat and bone that was interested in also,
0: not, not at all, okay. <laughs> nothing existed.
1: Okay, so, um, and that was that was nominated for like you know, Doug Wright mm-hmm. and an Ignatz, uh, and those are pretty like prestigious awards. The Doug Wright is like the Indie Comics Award for Canada, and the Ignatz is like more small press and like more widely recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that like? Like, you're doing this little thing called the uh, Tower Kind, and suddenly you get some critical acclaim.
0: Uh, it was great. It was really encouraging, um, and especially because Towerkind was, I I always think of it as a sketch, like it's a sketch of a comic. It wasn't, I hadn't intended to collect it as a book. That was an opportunity that I was glad I had and I jumped at, but it was just something I made because I wanted to try and do something. So to have it actually get recognized and have people notice it felt amazing.
1: You mentioned that it was inspired by kids in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Like, in what way? What is it, what is it about?
0: Um, it's about uh, a group of kids in the St. Jamestown neighborhood, which I think is one of Toronto's less understood neighborhoods. Uh, it tends to have a reputation for being, um, you know, dangerous and dirty and sort of like not well kept. But it's actually just a family neighborhood. It just happens to have more density than right, people right. are used to seeing. Do
1: you, do you think that's as a result of like a minority population? Yeah,
0: or? definitely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's... Um, it's a huge immigrant population and it's close to like Regent Park, which is another misunderstood neighborhood. So it just like develops this reputation from people who don't even go there. Right. So I was living there for, I think uh, four or five years and I just wanted to like set something there so that people could read it and see a different side of this, this neighborhood, which is more the like people interacting together and languages crashing against one another and all this like, sort of clambering over one another of kids and just, uh, yeah, to to draw like a sketch of that neighborhood.
1: So then if you were going to like summarize it to somebody who wanted to read it, how would you, like, what would you say? Like, how would you pitch it?
0: Um, With Towerkind, it's uh, a group of Toronto kids from St. James Town who have to sort of learn to interact with each other at the end of the world.
1: Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, another, like, post-apocalyptic uh, Toronto story. For <laughs> yeah. Sure. It's awesome. Um, and then was was it through Towerkind that you got hooked up with Conundrum? Yep. So tell me about that. Like, what was it like, you know, finding a publisher? Because some people that create comics, like, that's their aspiration, but they never kind of get there. So how did you find Conundrum? Um,
0: I got very lucky. Uh, I've made some really great friends in the Toronto comics community. And um, because of that, I was able to get an introduction to Andy, Andy Brown from Conundrum. So um, I had become friends with Georgia Weber, who does the comic book uh, Dumb, which came out from, I think, Fantagraphics. Right. Um, so through knowing her, she knew Andy and she got us talking to one another.
1: Nice. And was Tower kind the first work that you presented? Because you were doing Meat and Bone at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: But Meat and Bone um, was a long way away from anything that I could have published. Uh, right. So um, Georgia Weber had actually talked to Andy about Tower Kind and been like, here's this thing. It's a completed story. Have a look at it. And so I sent him, I don't know if I sent him the printed books or the PDF, but I sent him what I had and he was interested in it.
1: I noticed with Meat and Bone, uh, and I and i think because it's like the webcomic nature, you sort of change it stylistically with every strip. It's a little bit different each each strip, whether that's through like color or like the way that you depict the characters isn't quite the same as you did the last time. Does Tower Kind have any kind of uh, stylistic notes or accoutrements associated?
0: Uh, yes, there was one of the books that I had initially drawn um, digitally. So I'm, I mostly work with like ink. Um, I've never really gotten comfortable with lining a comic or drawing directly onto digital surfaces. I can do the the coloring and the finishing fine there, but I just don't have the the feel for it. I haven't developed the feel for drawing directly. But I had planned to use Towerkind as a way of pushing myself to do this. Uh, It just wasn't um, good time management. So this one first chapter looked completely different from all of the chapters that followed. So before I collected that, I wound up... Uh, redrawing the whole thing um, like that whole uh, 12-page chapter. Um, otherwise because it was drawn within one year and it was always kind of the same format and the same grid it doesn't vary too much although I do think you can tell by the last um, the last few pages that I was really really involved with the story and I really loved what I was telling and the level of detail and attention and sort of uh, comfort with my own drawing had definitely escalated by then.
1: Would you say it's more traditional comic or would you say that it's more experimental?
0: Definitely. It's pretty traditional. Okay. Um, the narrative structure is loose. And in that sense, it's experimental. But as far as like the pacing and the way it's presented goes, it's, it's just a comic. It's straightforward a comic.
1: For your process, are you attracted to more uh, experimental ways of presenting things or what well, like what would you say your process is when you actually get down to drawing? Obviously it's evolved since since then.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's settled into a really specific structure, which I don't know if that's uh, necessarily a good thing in order to finish meat and bone and to just not be working on it forever. I definitely had to develop like a quick way of of doing things that was consistent so it's you know not, it's nothing unusual it's uh draw the page um ink the page scan it color it it's ready uh i think the thing that's maybe odd about my my the way i work is um for some of the last few years uh while i was working on meat and bone i actually like didn't rent so i was sort of functionally homeless Uh, and I had to make a workspace that could fit in a suitcase. So I wound up doing most of the pages of meat and bone in sketchbooks, where I would draw and ink directly into the sketchbook, because it was contained and safe. Um, So that's one thing that's a little unusual. Like, I don't really work on the best paper quality, and I don't uh, blue line or uh, do transfers or anything like that it's basically as fast and compact as you can possibly make a comic
1: are you always using the same tools
0: yeah for for meat and bone and pretty much since tower kind i've always used exclusively the pentel pocket brush and um a g-tech gel roller nice. that's it
1: nice and then would you just color digitally yep awesome
0: yeah i used to i used to do a little bit more that was painterly like i did a short comic for um kevin chap's puppy teeth which was an anthology it was absolutely super gorgeous uh which ran several years ago now and that comic was actually all brush ink work and like it was completely painted in inks and then digitally colored and with like these different layer separations but it's such a it's such a time-consuming process uh that it just hasn't really been feasible for me.
1: And then didn't Kevin Chap do the introduction for, for Meat and Bone?
0: Yeah. Um, Kevin Chap and I have been, I don't, I feel like we've been like doing comics from the same starting point. Uh, when I started Meat and Bone, they started, um, a comic which was called Project Ballad, which, um, isn't, isn't around anymore, but we'd started them at the same time and we sort of like bonded over this newness of, of making webcomics together. And since then, I've followed their work, which continues to become more, like, beautiful and community-driven and uh, emotionally powerful. Uh, so it's just been, like, a real pleasure and honor to kind of be in Kevin's cohort. Cohort.
1: That's awesome. He said something in the introduction to Meat and Bone that, that really struck me, especially because when I started reading it and I noticed all the sort of slight stylistic differences he talked about how like every line was so intentional and everything you did in that comic was so, like nothing was wasted and that everything you were doing, he could tell that you were, you knew exactly what you wanted to do from like moment to moment. Is that is that true?
0: Uh, yes. I mean, I don't want to sound egotistical, but like a rule I had when I started doing meat and bone was that I was never allowed to redraw anything. Um, a lot of web cartoonists, get in this loop of like i've done 50 pages and now the first 10 pages look bad i'll go back and redraw those but now these pages look bad so i'll redraw those and you never make progress so i told myself i wasn't allowed to fix anything Mm -hmm. so the first the first 50 pages are really ugly um and i just like continued to push myself to do the inks in one pass and never to fix anything and to go forward and over the years it got to the point where my first inks always felt like they were the right inks. So I do think I developed a confidence in my line because I didn't give myself any other options.
1: So why did you make that decision to never go over it again?
0: We have so little time in the world, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't want to spend every waking day redoing the same page I did the day before. Right. And this
1: is a 200 plus page uh, tome.
0: Yeah, it's, at it's 340 pages. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so just time time nice yeah
1: um so let's get into meat and bone because that's the major thing and and you know that's what people will know you uh for and that sort of thing where i mean i mean i could tell that it seemed like a lot of the issues you were dealing with were like personal experience and and things that you you'd experienced before but like how, how did you decide to do Meat and Bone? Where did the idea come from? What was the, the sort of genesis of I'm going to do this and not only am I going to do it, but I'm going to do it as like a webcomic?
0: Um, it came from Drawn and Devoured uh, because I was doing this food blog that I couldn't afford to do. I'd just finished university. I had no money. I had like a serving job. And I had a really messed up relationship with food and my body. And so I was like, I've been wanting to do a comic forever. This still sort of feels like my, my first love. So what if I did a comic that isn't quite auto bio? Because I don't, at that point particularly, but even now I like, don't find comfort in being totally exposed. Like all the, all the respect for auto bio artists who are able to put themselves out there like that, but it's not for me, um, So I I basically broke down like the main issues of my struggles and my feelings about eating disorders and body image. And at that point, I'd been sort of experimenting with polyamory and just all this stuff that I was feeling. So I like broke it down. What are the things that I haven't seen said anywhere else? What would I want to say about these things? And I sort of tried to pull a story out of all of that.
1: Mm -hmm. I, I, I say that it seemed like it was coming from like, you know, a very personal place because you seem to have a very good understanding of like the emotional intricacies of of what people are going through who are who are going through things like bulimia and anorexia and like eating disorders and even like the polyamory thing it seemed it seemed like you knew things that you just you just wouldn't know being on the being on the outside looking in you know
0: maybe i do i do think it's possible to like, pay enough attention and have strong empathy and to to actually have that level of insight into something that isn't something that, like, I individually have experienced. Right. Um, and there are some things in the book where, like, um, one of the characters is asexual, which I don't personally know anything about, but I like to think I did him justice, and mm-hmm. um, But a lot of it does draw on my own personal experience, either exaggerated or subdued a little bit in how I'm portraying it um, to to create a good narrative.
1: You mentioned that you had a kind of a messed up relationship with food. And and I I find that ironic, given that you were doing a food blog and you you loved food so much. (laughs) And that makes me think, like, are other people that are doing food blogs, do they also maybe have this weird relationship with food and their body and that sort of thing, too? Uh, but, you know, that's beside the point. So tell me a little bit about that, like as much as you're comfortable sharing, what was your relationship with food and uh, how did it manifest?
0: Uh, ever since I was like a, a kid, I'd been uh, bigger and not athletic and just sort of the, the usual hosts of being a teenage girl who isn't popular or pretty. And it definitely got to me, and it lasted into well into my my late twenties. Um, I'm cured now, mm. but you know it affected every meal I had, um, and it affected every outfit I wore. So uh, it was sort of around um, university when I was you know out on my own and able to control how I was buying groceries and what I was doing uh, how is it, how I was exercising and all that, that I, instead of developing a healthy relationship with food, with my independence, I took it really, really to the extreme side and I would just stop eating entirely for like weeks. Um, so I knew this was an unhealthy habit and it had a lot of, uh, negative effects on how I could perceive the world. Um, like once I got conventionally attractive, people treated me differently, but I couldn't really trust how they were treating me because I knew if I hadn't become conventionally attractive, they wouldn't treat me that way. So it kind of changes how I look at other people and trust other people's perception of me.
1: Right. It seemed fake because you structured it yourself.
0: Not even fake, but just like I I knew that people would treat me differently, so... I felt like they wouldn't maybe see the real me or, uh, how to, how to phrase.
1: Like you were lying to them?
0: Like, like people were two-faced without even meaning to. Not that I was lying to them, but that they were lying to me. Right, right, right. Yeah, so it, it had like a really weird effect on how I perceived other people's perceptions. Right. So, you know, the eating disorder thing is a a complete head trip. Yeah, yeah. It's no fun. Don't recommend.
1: Yeah, because you don't really know where other people are coming from. You exactly. just think you do.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it definitely had a, a lasting effect on how I was able to interact with other people.
1: Right. And I mean, when we enter the comic, uh, Anne, who's is like the main the mm-hmm. main character, right? It's an, an ensemble, but I would say that her her struggle is the main struggle that we're that we're dealing with. Yeah. She seems like she has you know she's she's gone through struggles with her body before um you know you you get the sense that she she's had uh, bulimia before and and that sort of thing and she has she has a goal and her goal is like she wants to be uh, skinny and she's tired of you know pr- you know being fat as she sees as she sees herself yeah. but she's not fat she's she doesn't you know i i wouldn't say that she presents as like an obese person at all so in your experience with food, was, was there, like, a goal? Like, she, her whole thing is, like, I have a, a place I want to get to, and I'm going to do everything I can uh, to get to that point sort of sort of thing.
0: Yeah, and at, at that point in my life, like, when I'm... Anne as a character is the same age as I was when I first started have Well, when I first started acknowledging to myself that I had these problems, which is kind of, like, about... 21-ish. Um, at the time I was writing this, I was more like 25-ish, and I had so much wisdom looking in hindsight. right? Um, I did definitely have those goals of like, I would like to be this thin no matter what it takes to get there. Um, as I was writing this story, uh, I was mostly better, but throughout the years I've always had moments where I sort of slide back and get into that bad headspace, but it becomes less and less frequent the farther away I get from that point in time.
1: What was your worst point? Like what turned it around for you? How did you get um, healthier?
0: Hmm. I'm not really sure. I think it maybe just comes with getting older and caring a lot less about what people think. Right. Um also like the the real acknowledgment that being attractive or thin or whatever has literally no effect on happiness. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> like, it's a lot more important to me to focus on things that make me happy. Like, I still exercise a ton, but that's because it makes me feel great. Right. It's not so much because I am trying to fit an ideal.
1: Yeah, kind of like the character Jane. Yeah. Jane, Jane pursues, you know, fitness and health, but she does it in a healthier way. She ends up becoming the example Uh, for Anne to, like, sort of switch Anne's uh, mindset.
0: Yeah, Anne and Jane sort of start at the same point, but uh, quickly move into different paths where Anne really can't, like, love herself enough to do things that will make her feel good. She keeps doing things that she thinks will make her happy and that people want her to do, which nobody wants her to do. Whereas Jane, you know, goes and finds herself and finds something that makes her feel good in her body as her body already is. Uh, so it's it's very much sort of, like, the example of what could be versus the example of what, you know, Anne is going through, right. actually.
1: And you were sort of going through that same thing, or...?
0: Yeah, it goes back and forth a lot. But, like, at that point in time, I was I was actively trying to figure out, like, what I wanted, what I felt, what would be good, what was bad, and just trying to make sense of all of that.
1: Yeah, and then on the other side, the other issue that, that this comic deals with is you know, the idea of polyamory and like wanting to be with more people. You have have Gwen, uh, but then navigating, you know, monogamy versus polyamory and like, what are the ethics of when you should tell people that you're dating (laughs) other people and that sort of thing. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that. Why is that uh, associated with you know, characters with eating disorders because it's it's not immediately, like the connection isn't immediately apparent.
0: Um, that's partially just uh, as running this as a webcomic, I initially planned it to be um, kind of ongoing and I wanted to make sure I had a lot of different stories I could dip in and out of so that it wasn't constantly the heaviness of this eating disorder central plot, but that, you know, readers would have something else to focus on, um, that they would also have moments of, levity and joy so that it's not just like a a mental trudge um right i do think the polyamory stuff can can interact with the eating disorder things because but i mean Anne isn't polyamorous so this doesn't affect her too much but uh like if your your self-worth and your perception of your own body image is really negative and you're trying to date at all let alone dating multiple people um that's going to be really difficult and really like grueling, uh, to feel good about how people are looking at you. Yeah. Um, now Gwen, who is sort of the, um, the main character that we see, uh, polyamory th- through her, her storylines and her perception, uh, she doesn't really have those issues. Um, she's sort of shown in contrast to Gwen, or sorry, in contrast to Jane and Anne as like the person who's always had what they're kind of trying to get yeah she's always been thin she's always been like conventionally pretty she's got the long blonde hair right um but it doesn't make her life easier yeah and multiple
1: times you see you know sort of Anne uh pining for her life yeah very much but then you see gwen's life and it's it's kind of a mess
0: yeah like it you can pine for something you don't have, but it doesn't mean if you had it, you would actually appreciate it.
1: Right, and I think the through line, you know, between the eating disorder and and the and the polyamory is sort of the insecurity that that they that yeah. you feel like the emotional insecurity. Uh, it's a different kind of insecurity, but it's an insecurity nonetheless, right?
0: Yeah, I think that's true.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, and and I always thought, like, polyamory was something that I, like, thought about, especially when I was, like, in my 20s and mm-hmm. dating and that sort of thing. But I always thought, like, this would be, like, very difficult and very high level. Like, uh, you know, I'm just learning how to, like, manage one relationship mm-hmm. and, like, manage, you know, the expectations of the opposite sex. I don't know how people would be able to do, like, the ninjutsu of trying to manage multiple people at once. You I, know? Think,
0: I think it can seem like, wow, such a fun such a fun thing to do. I can't believe people will let me date multiple people and then you get to it and those communities are generally, when they're good, they're really rooted in like heavy communication and like managing expectations and managing feelings and like it can still be really, really great. But it's not just like a party where everyone's having loads of sex all the time.
1: Have you experienced both the positive and negative aspects of that
0: community? Um, Yeah, like at the time I was writing this, I was more into like active poly dating where i would like go on dates with multiple people um and i had an older partner who i think had agreed to be poly because he wanted to be with me but he actually didn't want that and so there was this loads of communication we just didn't have about how to do it in a way that would be good for him which was largely because he didn't want to do it (laughs) so like i i learned a lot during that phase when i was more actively in those communities um And I just, I hadn't seen it in any books. So I was like, I will also include this as a subplot because it should be talked about.
1: Right, right. Absolutely. Uh, What was your experience like? Like coming out of polyamory, like what are your your keys to sort of being successful in that lifestyle?
0: I'm not really like out of polyamory. I'm just like super, super casual in how I approach things. Right. So I just treat it like I would treat meeting anyone in general if i meet somebody that i like and they're open to that we can talk about it but i'm just not. i'm not into active dating <laughs>
1: right right and, um, it, and if it turns into a monogamous thing it just is a monogamous thing or do you have to broach the subject of
0: um I'm polyamory also, like i'm also cool with being monogamous right uh, it just de- it really depends on who i'm with and how that works out in any given moment like there's no for me i've decided like there's just no template right like It's all about who you're with, how you talk to them, being open about wants and feelings and uh, being willing to be vulnerable and just like to negotiate. Mm -hmm. But um, some people have like more solid frameworks and rules and stuff, but I'm much more just like absolutely situational.
1: And you deal with like all these, you know, what, what people would probably assume are like really tough emotional issues to properly convey in a comic book. Like, I would say that there's a lot of landmines when you're trying to honestly convey something like an eating disorder or like polyamory and like you gotta like kind of get it right. But you make a lot of intentional decisions. Um, you know, tell me about trying to uh, structure this as a comic and like how do you, what decisions did you make to try to get to the emotion uh of these you know complex issues like within a comic because that would seem you know really hard like at least with a novel you have like the internal monologue of a person but how did how did you sort of try to convey you know the the struggle without being you know trite about it or or misrepresenting it
0: um as far as like uh powerful emotional moments go. I try to lean really heavily on like a pathetic fallacy or environmental cues, uh, having uh, a setting that conveys that intensity and also to have like a jarring or unsettling color scheme, which is something I found a lot of power in in making comics was uh, stepping outside of conventional coloring and just doing something that felt strange and unusual so that's that's like just for the to convey to the reader this emotion at a glance before they're even reading the words that's sort of what i i rely on as far as the storytelling choices and the narrative and dialogue and stuff like that um that required a lot of sort of facing myself and being honest with myself about like what were the most difficult internal or uh, social conversations that I had when I was feeling these things. And if, if that's something concrete, can I push it farther? And should I push it farther? And if there's something that comes up uh, out of, you know, observing this for myself, uh, can I bring that back throughout the comic? Like there's this one thing um, Anne does from early on in the comic until the end of the comic where she's always like, I have a pretty face, but it's not a nice thing. It's basically a way of sort of uh, throwing the rest of herself out right She's she like,
1: dismiss yeah. it's like a dismissed yeah it's like thing. the only thing i have that's good is my pretty yeah. face
0: um so that was something once i actually was like this is like a really strong feeling for me that would work for her it's something that came back throughout and throughout
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um i did want to talk to you about the color scheme just because uh yeah it's it's the visual cue that tells you Oh, like we're gonna be dealing with some like cold things, and and just the way that you draw each character is a little different depending on uh, the emotion that you're trying to convey. It seems, um, and that's that's a talent that not everybody can like balance in a way that it would it would come across the way that they want it to. So, how did you sort of choose your palette? How did you decide? Okay, I'm gonna draw them a little bit more angular this time or there's going to be close-ups or different perspectives and that sort of thing um was that something innate or or did you actually go through it in a much more like purposeful way uh
0: I think that's something that's like innate it's the way I draw is not like very on model I Mm -hmm. guess but um I've always tried to lean into capturing the essence and the feeling of a character and not necessarily their exact dimensions Mm -hmm. so like there are rules i have for how to draw different characters like their hair must always do this thing is a big thing i focus on is like the feeling of the hair um to the point that you know marshall's hair is uh a motif throughout the book and on the cover of the book because it's actually like Anne is drowning in this other person and is literally like drowning in her hair, which is like an obs- a point of obsession. Right. Um, like I kind of want to say that's a, that's a bit of a laziness on my part and also part of the like I never go back and redraw things. It's just like it is a slashed and fluid way of inking that – I've grown to love a lot, um, but I, I have actually had like some readers be like, sometimes I don't know which character is which because <laughs> the drawing has shifted. No, and, but
1: I but I think the drawing yeah. shifting is good, particularly when you're dealing with this because it's about a journey of transformation, mm. like going from your sickest to your healthiest. You know, going from sick to sicker. You know what I mean? So every time you change what a character looks like, you can also convey, like, are they getting better? Are they getting worse? Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of a thing, too. You know, like, the way that you you conveyed... And There's a part where she's, like, on drugs. Like, Marshall gives her something or yeah. whatever. And you totally have to change the drawing style just to convey, you know, that she's on something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, so there is an advantage to that because you can... You can convey transformation in different states visually very well.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't ever want to be restricted by like my own rules or the way that I draw. I would rather have everything look uniquely different than sort of have the same face for all the characters all the time. Like I'd, I'd rather it be lively and messy than. Uh, carefully contained
1: and plus there's emotional information there that you don't have to say because it's in the drawing
0: yeah like i've i've tried to have a really elastic uh way of drawing expressions and if that requires somebody's face to stretch that's fine
1: right like you say with marshall's hair and mm-hmm. how on the cover it's sort of you know coming from superhero comics it reminded me of like a, the tendrils of like the venom symbiote <laughs> and you know the venom symbiote in and of itself is like the evil that sort of yeah. parasitically invades your life Um, I wanted to talk about Marshall because my experience of reading it was like right off the bat. I didn't have any empathy for this character and I knew that she was bad news. (laughs) And it it really, just because of the luck of her and like this person is going to be emotionally caustic. Like not only is, you know, she sick and like doing damage to herself, but she's definitely going to, you know, be the problem for Anne and, and, you know, totally take advantage of her and do this whole weird push-pull of, like, I like you, I hate you, I like you, I hate you mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I got that pretty much right away. Like, maybe I should have had a little bit more empathy for what Marshall was going for, but right away I was like, no, like, stop hanging out with her. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So where does Marshall come from? Like, did you have people in your life that were like her or is this sort of like the the devil on your shoulder sort of uh, coming out Um, externally?
0: Marshall like a lot of the characters are partially based on real people Mm. or like mashups of different people. Marshall is one of the only characters who's absolutely completely fictional Um, and she is basically like the externalization of uh, the desire to have an eating disorder. Not desire to be thin but the desire to actually have the eating disorder itself so she's almost like a like she's the embodiment of that but um, even though that's true I tried to be compassionate towards her as like a person Um, and to be like even somebody this damaged who's hurt so much that she would like lash out to the people who are trying to help her like even this person uh, can make a reader feel sympathy. Um, did that did you feel that by the end <laughs>
1: I I knew that I was supposed okay. to feel sympathy well in a particular part like I'll take it it started to happen for me and I, I started to feel empathy a little bit when she was at her lowest point and then and Anne at this point is healthy and you know at least mentally more Working than she was it. and is and it, they go into her apartment and you see that she's like completely at like rock bottom, and it's yeah. time to go to the hospital. And and I I also had empathy for her when she she gets a little bit better, and she tries to be social and like go to the party at the at the Bell, and uh, it sort of works out, but not really because she's still you know in her old habits of like lashing out to people that are trying to help her. You know what I mean? So that that was where I was like my most empathetic is that you know, you see her trying or you see her at her lowest point, And then I'm like, oh, like, you're, you're not hurting anyone but yourself at this point.
0: I think somebody like that needs a lot of not giving up on before they can kind of get on the same level as other people. Right. Um, and in this story, like, if I were to extend it another hundred pages and have, like, a martial Redemption arc, maybe that would be enough time, but probably not. Um, I'd rather leave it open to the reader's interpretation about, like, you know, what happens with this person in the end.
1: Yeah, did she get out of it? Because you also convey, like, how exhausting it is to try to help someone who's that self-destructive. Yeah. You know, like, how you try and try and try and try, and they're still not getting the message. And sometimes you just have to cut it off for your own sanity.
0: Which is a tragedy, even if it's true, because, like, people who are hurting that much need help and patience, but at the same time, it's kind of like the oxygen mask on a plane, like you have to put your own on first before you help somebody else because otherwise, you know, you both go down.
1: Right. And I feel like that's what Anne ultimately decides to do. There's also that really subtle, uh I guess it's like a, a romantic attraction. Like you're not, you know that they're not actually dating, mm-hmm. but you see that like, uh, you know, Anne loves her and, like, sort of wants to be with her in in more ways than just a supportive friend. Like, there seems to be this romantic obsession, like, maybe they're dating, and but they're not calling it that kind of a thing, at least from Anne's perspective.
0: Marshall is, like, nothing but confusion for Anne. Right. And there's a lot of that, uh, a really typical thing that I've heard of speaking with other queer women is the whole, like, uh, do I want this person or do I want to be this person? And there's kind of a blurring of the line there that s- doesn't always go away. So I think Anne is basically just like living in that space and unable to kind of find a way to either side of, of the question. And I
1: think it's happened where you you get in a relationship with someone and then and then you you get so obsessed with them. Like you you yeah. mortgage your whole life. You start moving <laughs> yeah. in, you start you start doing all that sort of stuff. And, and, you know, like that's something that everyone can kind of relate to that, you know, there's people that you know are bad for you, but you keep going back to them.
0: Yeah. And yeah, because you just see, either you only see the good in them or you only see the potential for good in them or you feel like you're the person who's going to save them and help them and fix them. And uh, I don't really think those things typically work. Yeah.
1: So. But you do put alarm bells in there, like the way she looks. Yeah. Is like she's already got some, you know, anorexic issues she's, and that sort of thing.
0: She's a lot more damaged and far along in her her eating disorder than Anne is, and she's really like hit that point where she knows people see her for what she is and she doesn't care anymore. She doesn't have to hide it because she couldn't hide it if she tried. So she's very blasé and very Uh, aggressively in people's faces about that. And
1: kind of resigned to, like, there's nothing I can do about this, so I'm just going to, like, celebrate it. Yeah. She's also,
0: I think one thing I should have conveyed more in the comic is she's the youngest character in the entire cast. She's, like, 19 years old. Oh. So she's, like, really not come into herself at all. Because she looks old. She looks
1: like she's, like, you know, the, like... The old, like, been around the block a few times. No, she's super young. <laughs> <laughs> um, but person. that also,
0: like, if... Um, like, I've met a few anorexics in my life. And unfortunately, one of the things is when you get that thin, you know, all your veins show. And you don't look as young as you are. So mm. it, it does take a toll on your body. So.
1: Right, right, for sure. Um, tell me about the decision to make it a webcomic. Why did you want to make it a webcomic? Uh, I think it enhances it because you even when in the collected edition you do see like the weekly thing just because it's it's different every time Mm
0: -hmm. um i very much wanted to like uh, i have been an avid reader of web comics since like mega tokyo so a very long time um and i just wanted to like participate in that i wanted to be one of the web comic makers and i wanted to like get a reader base who i would interact with and just sort of have that direct uh, contact with the work I'm making and the people who are reading it which with a published book you definitely don't have that to the same degree like maybe someone will come up to my table and tell me they like my book but with a webcomic you can have like an a live action comment section and Mm. I thought that would be super cool.
1: Did that influence the work in any way like did the community have influence (laughs) of like the direction of the characters or you know they brought up things that you didn't think of or
0: um there was i mean meat and bone didn't really work very well as a web comic uh partially probably because i ran it on tumblr partially because i did a non mobile device friendly format um maybe because it was a really heavy comic that uh isn't that fun to read <laughs> honestly like i think it's good to read and it's a good story but as far as fun it's not a It's not like Cape comics. Um, So I didn't actually get a huge reader base and I didn't get a lot of comments, which used to bother me when I was starting. And then afterwards, I sort of was like, well, that's just not the comic I'm making. Uh, But there was one comic, uh, sorry, one comment specifically, I remember uh, from someone who said, hey, here's a scene where they talk about a lot of supplements and stuff they're doing. And, you know, people will use this as a guidebook. Maybe you shouldn't have that be so apparent. And I actually did wind up changing that for the the print edition where that scene, uh, that stuff is all sort of talked around or blanked out somehow. Is
1: that the scene where you're like, you know, you know that this was bad, but you don't need to see it?
0: Um, no, actually, this is a scene that's earlier where Anne and Marshall go to like, uh, they go to Essence of Like Life Organics in Kensington Market and they buy like supplements. Wow. Um, they buy, uh, well, some stuff. Uh, that scene the the scene you're referencing comes later and i on purpose chose not to show that because of this comment i was already thinking about that feedback i'd received right right so it, did, it did affect how i wrote some of the the scenes later yeah
1: on. you don't want to be like the handbook and how to be yeah. anorexic. you don't want to inspire people to take up an eating disorder yeah
0: and one of the reasons i made meat and bone is because basically one there's not there weren't any uh comic books about eating disorders at that time. There are, I think, two others or so now. Um, But every piece of media that exists about eating disorders is absolute garbage. And it's all very voyeuristic. It seems to be written uh, for people who don't have eating disorders to see how horribly, you know, mostly young women uh, treat themselves and to sort of, like, see all the tips and tricks of these insane diets. And they, they read, like, manuals and they read, like, like uh, like tabloid pieces. Um, even recently, there was a Keanu Reeves movie that was uh, called, I think, To the Bone. Um, and the production team focused so heavily on prosthetics to make her bones pop and her cheekbones stand out and fake hair because if you get very anorexic, you uh, start producing more hair because um, your body thinks you're hypothermic, basically. Um, so even like the most... Recent stuff being made about eating disorders is very much pandering to, like, a healthy audience who wants to see somebody be that thin and to just, like, ogle somebody who is that thin and that unhealthy. And I, I hate that. I hate uh, it so much.
1: For you, like, did it uh, – it never got to that point for you, right?
0: Um, No. Like, at my worst, when I, I literally hadn't eaten for 14 days, like, I was – at the middle range of what is considered a healthy weight for my height. Uh, Nobody would have guessed that. Nobody even knew I had an eating disorder until years later when I told people. Like, you couldn't tell.
1: After this had already come out, you told people?
0: Um, When I started making this comic, I realized I'd have to actually tell people that it's based on uh, my own experiences.
1: And what was the reaction?
0: Um, My sister was super upset about it. Uh, Other people... Kind of revealed their own stories to me so you know a lot of people are doing stuff that you don't know they're doing
1: right and you never takeaway. know that somebody has an eating disorder they look completely yeah. normal normal quote unquote
0: yeah quote unquote absolutely <laughs> so
1: yeah um what was the reaction to like how you portrayed such a serious subject matter i can't believe we're doing this podcast like right after bell let's talk day yeah which which, you know i admire for the awareness that it brings but i think you know where the money goes is a little bit is a little bit dubious um but like what was the feedback from the community like people who'd had eating disorders people who treat eating disorders even the polyamory community like were they like, you nailed it? Or like, what What did you get?
0: I haven't actually... I don't think I've heard from anyone directly in the poly community. So I can't really say what people's perceptions are of that. And that is still just like a subplot. Um, a few people have uh, piped up and told me that it really uh, reflected them. The way they uh, sort of have an eating disorder that is an anorexia, but it still dominates every aspect of their lives. Um, there was actually a, a friend of mine who was also making web comics, but was very exclusively into, like, uh, sort of Adventure Time or Homestuck-style sort of really fun, light, uh, ridiculous comics who was reading it sort of because I was their friend and not because they're into that sort of storytelling, who told me that they, like, couldn't really read it all at once because it was so difficult and so uh relatable to what they'd experienced that it was actually like almost impossible to get through reading as a as a story
1: like without crying or
0: yeah or even just like without feeling too much to to want to continue with that book so wow i i like to think that maybe means i caught something true uh hopefully
1: I find that sometimes, uh, especially graphic novels, because they're sort of like the sexy literary form <laughs> at various points in history. Whenever somebody covers like heavy subject matter with a graphic novel, it becomes like a teaching tool within the co- within the community. Like, like, oh, I'm, a, I, you know, I, uh, I treat people with eating disorders all the time, and I think Meat and Bone is such a great example of like what they go through. Did you ever get any feedback from like? the academic community or like the people that like deal with uh eating disorders or other mental illnesses
0: not a ton yet so we're we're just coming up on like the one year anniversary of meat and bone getting published uh it came out may 2019 mm-hmm. so i think i'm just like starting to get more consistent feedback from people who've been picking it up at libraries and bookstores um i was invited to go to a graphic medicine conference which is uh sort of studying the intersection between um, medicine and graphic novels. So I would say that's like the closest I've had to that kind of direct feedback. But even that, that's just like, that's an invitation to attend. It hasn't really manifested in hearing from practitioners of any kind yet
1: i i've met the graphic medicine guy in fact i think i met him at the at the comics and mental illness panel that you were on Uh, and i i got a kick out of the fact that his business card is a tongue depressor um (laughs) smart (laughs) but um uh, that's beside the point do you have an opinion on like the graphic medicine philosophy which which you know it's all about like conveying health issues through comics and you know do you, do you think that that's a, a a great medium to do that in? Like, what, what do you feel about the graphic medicine? I don't want to call it a movement, but, uh, you know, that whole area.
0: I mean, I think generally speaking, anything that gets people to grow their awareness and to read things and to get more knowledge is good. Um, I feel like things like eating disorders occupy a, unusual place there where uh, people who have them will read all the material in order to get tips and tricks which like if you have like Georgia Weber's comic dumb which was about losing her voice like you're not gonna read that book hoping to lose your voice right that's not why you would pursue that you would no. pursue it to gain an understanding of the experience and of the underlying factors and um, you know, it's it's a more truly educational uh, thing, but when it comes to, like, eating disorders, there's a very accessible negative side to it. So I think with that specifically, it might be good to practice a lot of caution in, in what gets uh, pushed around. Mm-hmm. Um, what's get and what gets promoted, I guess I should say. Right,
1: one of the things that I really liked about Beat and Bone is that you the diversity of the cast in mm-hmm. terms of like sexuality, in terms of uh, you know, visible minorities, and, and the way that you portray like asexuality and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Was that really like this is what I'm gonna do because I, I haven't seen it in other comics? Like, was that a super intentional thing?
0: Yeah, that was absolutely totally intentional. One, I live in an extremely multicultural city, um, I travel in very queer circles, and I also think it's just really important to try and portray as many uh, experiences in life as is possible. So I tried to have a very diverse cast and do the best I could to portray them uh, respectably and realistically. with the amount of space each character gets, like some some people get more screen time than others, obviously.
1: Mm-hmm. And Toronto, just like in things like Scott Pilgrim, you know, obviously plays an important role. There are locations, mm-hmm. and and that sort of thing that that you're inspired by. Is yeah. that just because you were living? You're living in the city.
0: Yeah, very much. And like I was inspired by Scott Pilgrim, I feel very strongly that like uh, Canadians should set their comics in Canada, like unless it's obviously like a location piece or a period piece or whatever like that but if you're just doing like here's the generic city make it your generic city because it's going to feel more authentic and you're going to connect to it more and I've had so many people who are just like I know this neighborhood I know this landmark I love that this exists um, especially with Tower Kind, like I got to do a workshop in that neighborhood for like uh, youth in that neighborhood and they were just like so thrilled to see their languages portrayed and to see, like, their landmarks portrayed. Like, that is one of the best moments I've had in comics is wow. that workshop that I got to run.
1: To sort of lighten the mood before we go, <laughs> um, one of the things that's continually referenced in this comic is, uh, I think it's the Jane Fonda classic, uh, Barbarella. Yeah. What is your connection and affinity to Barbarella?
0: Um, it is just such a ridiculous over-the-top romp and actually some pretty good sci-fi uh and also um Jane Fonda is a really uh admirable advocate for a bunch of different things but she also advocated for um eating disorder awareness like she herself was was a
1: pioneer of the fitness movement and I think she kind of didn't like that um
0: well I know that like she she had a lot of body issue uh a lot of issues because of barbarella right. and being in that role mm-hmm. and she also was bulimic and right. she had to like switch her mentality from like trying to be super thin through these negative ways through trying to pursue health for healthy reasons uh so i'd read that uh in one of her in like a foreword in one of her fitness books that's actually referenced in the the meat and bone book of mine um and i just thought like here's somebody who has a really good uh self-awareness Mm -hmm. Um, but is also tied to this like sex bomb character who is absolutely an unattainable ideal for like the average person. So having like those two, the real person and the character working together and having Anne sort of picking the wrong role model, that I thought was an interesting thing to play with.
1: Yeah. The fact that she's such an, like Jane Fonda is such a, you know, she's so known for her activism now and that sort of thing. But at the time like there's a there's an irony that i'm just thinking about now where you know her like you know fitness things might have played a role in people's probably anorexia and eating disorders also yeah probably so so there's that whole thing too it's like is like you know she she experienced it but she also perpetuated it and she's trying to like probably take that back and has different feelings about it now so there's all these subtext related to like jane fonda especially if <laughs> you, if, especially if you put her in a comic that deals with uh you know anorexia and bulimia and that sort of thing yeah it's, yeah it's crazy <laughs> so um yeah i guess like barbara is like pretty cool i want i wanted to uh watch the movie before i came here but i didn't get a chance
0: you should definitely watch it it's very fun <laughs>
1: Have you seen Danger Diabolic? It was made around the same time with a lot of the same people. No, it's
0: been recommended to me a bunch. I I think I uh, have it legally purchased somewhere.
1: (laughs) Nice, nice. Cool. You should should check it out because there's a lot of crossover. Um, Yeah, so uh, what's next for you? Because it sounded like at the beginning of our conversation that you wanted to sort of get out of comics and, you know which i think is kind of a tragedy because this is one of like the best comics that i've ever read so uh, i want to say like what what are you doing in comics but i'm afraid you're gonna say (laughs) nothing and i hate it um i don't
0: i don't know if i want to get out of comics i just don't see how to make comics work okay uh that said the next thing i'm working on is my friendship edition comic uh our book is coming out in may and we're doing a renovation theme which was inspired by like the Grover House thread from Reddit about a man who just does not know how to do home renovation. And so we're going to just take that and run with it and make it ridiculous and weird. Wow. So that's that's what I'm working on. A
1: messed up Bob Vila or something. Yeah, this
0: guy, I mean, if you look up Grover House, it is a great read. So weird. I'm definitely
1: going to link to it at the bottom of this podcast. (laughs) Uh, For sure. How can people follow you on social media and uh, see the next thing that you're doing?
0: Um, I am highly consistent on all of the social medias that I have. I am Verhu, which is V-E-R-W-H-O. It's meant to trick people into pronouncing my last name the right way, but it doesn't actually work. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. And uh, you can pick up Meat and Bone through Conundrum Press. Mm-hmm. What was their reaction to this? Because this is like, this is kind of like your life's work at the, at the moment.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a... Bit different than a lot of things that Andy has put out before, right? Um, so I don't know if he entirely went out on a limb, but like he he definitely did a leap of faith and was like, yeah, let's do this giant book. Uh, he has been nothing but supportive, um, especially because I've, like, getting the pages done on time and getting them to him was just such a trial at the end, and he was very very patient. Uh, And he's done a great job promoting it and cheering it. And I really couldn't be happier. Did you
1: have to finish it as a graphic novel or?
0: Um, Yeah, when he agreed to publish it, I was like almost done. But I had like about a year's worth of work left to do.
1: Yeah, check this out because this is going to stand the test of time (laughs) as a work. But also these characters are going to stick with you. And I think... You know, when people now say Marshall, uh, you know, it's it's Kat's character that I'm going to think <laughs> of. Um, so, yeah, so you, you've done an amazing job. I hope people listen to this podcast and pick up this book. And uh, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Beach Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.